might use the idea, one has to introduce oneself. I, I'm Gordon, I'm one of the recycled elders in the church here. So I'm the only recycled elder, <laughs> in case you get the wrong idea about the others. Um, let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, thank you that you have given us your word. That through it we become wise for salvation as we hear of your son. And you give us everything we need to serve and honor you and be your witnesses in our world. Lord, may your truth take hold of us and lead and guide us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Matt has already given us the title for our Bible study today, which is to do with God smelling our worship and wanting it to smell good. That's obviously linked into the uh, prompting of uh, the passage that Derek read just now from uh, Exodus 30. Let me quote again verses uh, 6 to 8. Put the altar, that's the altar in which the incense is burned, in front of the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant Law, before the atonement cover that is over the tablets of the Covenant Law, where I will meet with you. Aaron, chief priest, must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. He must burn incense again when he lights the lamps of twilight, so that incense will burn regularly before the Lord for the generations to come. Now, it's clear that this incense burning was important. There's a special uh, altar made of expensive wood. It's overlaid with gold. And Aaron is to burn this incense morning, evening, every day for the generations to come. And there's that prohibition at the end where uh, no one else is to steal any of this expensive fragrant incense uh, to, to beautify their own homes. This is something very important to God. And we're going to see why that is. Get the context for these instructions. Uh, God has just brought his people from slavery in Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. They haven't got there yet. They're in the wilderness. They're camping there. And God has commanded them to uh, build something called the tabernacle, which is a large tent, marquee-sized tent. It's pitched in the very middle of the camp, and that's where God is to be worshipped. Now, in earlier studies, we have seen something very wonderful uh, about the tabernacle. Uh, previous chapter, Exodus 29, 45, God says, I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. So the tabernacle is God's dwelling place, his home among them. But we have to add to something, something to that which makes it even more wonderful. God says twice in this chapter, chapter 30, verses 6 and 36, this place is where I will meet with you. And that's why again and again the tabernacle is called the tent of meeting. Now, anticipating something gets a little complicated because in chapter 33 we're going to see that Moses made another little tent outside the camp called the tent of meeting. So we have two tents of meeting, big one in the center of the camp where God dwells and then Moses' special little tent of meeting. But it's all about meeting, which is actually wonderful. Amazing this, isn't it? That God desires 
both to dwell among his people and to meet with his people. Echoes of Eden, where God constantly met with Adam and Eve. He wants to restore something of that now. Oh yes, there has to be an atoning sacrifice if we're going to meet with God, but still he does want to meet with his people. I was thinking about this, isn't this such a contrast with the earthly uh, kings, emperors, presidents, rulers, and so on? Now, they might boast that their dwelling place is among their people. My presidential palace is in the center of the capital city. That's where I live. And then you look at the railings, the high railings, the high walls, the soldiers guarding the place. The message, I want to meet with you. No, I don't. Whereas here is the king of kings the creator, the sovereign God, the Holy One, wanting to meet with his people. And when that happens, it's a fragrant thing to God when the worship going on is as he wants it to be. Previous chapter, I think um, Rob referred to this briefly last week, Exodus 29, it uses these wonderful words to describe a particular act of worship in the tabernacle as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So when God's people meet with him, where he dwells among his people as they worship him, this is pleasing when this happens in the way that God wants it to happen. Now we have many tents of meeting, as it were. You say this is one of them. When together, Sunday mornings, we seek to worship God, meet with him. Uh, in our families, we may be singing praise together, reading the Bible together, praying together, another tent of meeting. Uh, when you gather in others, with others in home groups and in settings like that, another tent of meeting on our own, a private tent of meeting. When we hear God's word, pray to him, sing to him. How can our meeting with God and worshiping of God in all these different settings be fragrant to him, a good smell in his nostrils? Now, we need to unpack that. We're going to have to jump out from Exodus 30 quite a lot to get the overall uh, flow of this in Scripture. Where in the Bible does the idea of fragrance in worship begin? Genesis 8. That's why Derek read that passage just now with Noah. Noah and his family emerged from the ark following the, the terrible judgment of God in the flood. The first thing that Noah did, Genesis 8, 20, 22, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and all the clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. Now notice the next bit. The Lord smelled the pleasing, the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. And isn't this a wonderful sentence? As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Noah worshipped. God smelled it. God loved the fragrance of it. God responded. Now, not the actual smell of Noah's burnt animal flesh. Burnt animal flesh does not smell good. I imagine we've all seen someone lose control of a barbecue and a piece of sausage or steak or chicken or something turns into 
black charcoal. We probably might even say it stinks to high heaven. It's not a pleasing aroma to high heaven by any stretch of the imagination, is it? What did smell good to God was the love in Noah's heart for God and his devotion to God expressed in his worship. And we know the story how when everybody else around Noah was defying God and disobeying God, Noah obeyed God. And when he emerged from the ark, he worshipped God with his burnt offerings. And God, as it were, sniffed it and said, beautiful, that smells good. That's the worship of a man who loves me and serves me, even though, when, even though it was a very costly thing for Noah to have done. It's really a kind of picture language, isn't it? A bit like when we say, that's music in my ears. Actually, I read a little thing just this week. Uh, someone was commenting on Solomon, King Solomon's prayer to God that he would have wisdom to rule God's people. And he said, that, that prayer must have been music in God's ears. And he didn't mean it was a band playing as Solomon prayed. He was saying that it's a picture language. Well, if Solomon's prayer was music in God's ears, Noah's worship was fragrance in God's nostrils. That's the imagery here of this fragrance. Right, that um, raises the big question. What is it that makes the worship of God's people smell good to him? We can answer that because of all these wonderful instructions that God gave Moses about what was to go on in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. When these things are in place, when these things are in the hearts of God's people, and they're responding to what's done in all the activity within the tent of meeting. That smells good to God. Now, of course, our worship in Christ is based on the new covenant, uh, what God has done in his son. We don't have an ark of the covenant, priests wearing ephods, animal sacrifices, burning incense, and so on. And as we were thinking last week, the beauty that we focus on is not the beauty of the priest's clothing, the priests in the Old Testament. We focus on the far, far greater beauty of Christ and what he achieved on the cross. But the principles of what pleased God then and what pleases him today are the same principles, even though our worship in Christ is, of course, far richer and fuller. So we're going to think about a few things. I hope we have time for four of them linked with the tabernacle, necessary for Israel's worship to smell good, and echoing in New Testament, New Covenant worship in Christ. Number one, our worship smells good to God when we approach him trusting only in the atoning sacrifice that he provides. Just a casual reading of the Old Testament, we can see that a very big part of what the priests did was offer sacrifices for sin. Now, Exodus itself doesn't give us much detail about that. We need to go into Exodus Continued, which is the book of Leviticus, uh, the next book in the Bible, and it gives in detail some of the stuff about sacrifices for sin. And here are some very, very important verses from that book which help us here. Leviticus 1, verses 3 and 4. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be accepted, acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. 
on to chapter 16, verses 21 and 22. The high priest is to lay both hands on the head of the goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them in the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. Leviticus 17.11 For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. Three incredibly important things come together in these verses. Rob said something of this a couple of weeks ago, but we need to repeat that because it's so important and even fill it out a little more in the light of these verses in Leviticus. First of all, a substitute dies for the worshippers, all of whom deserve death. I remember one of the international Bible studies uh, some years ago, one of the participants said to me, uh, we've been reading about all these blood sacrifices, animal sacrifices, and he said, it's horrific to think of those tens and tens of thousands of animals being sacrificed over the hundreds of years of Israel's history. Why all that death? The New Testament gives us the answer, the wages of sin is death, always. When we shake our fists at God and say, shove off God, I'm, not going, I'm going to live my life my way. You may be the creator. I'm not going to let you tell me how to live. When we dare to rebel against God in that way, which we all do, there can only be one consequence. God has to judge that. Death. But, wonderfully, the animals die symbolically as substitutes for the sinful worshippers. Isn't that so clear there in Leviticus 1? The worshippers place their hands on the heads of the animal. Symbolically, their sin is transferred to the animal. It substitutes for them. It dies for them. And that was at its most vivid in the great festival, the annual festival in Israel of the Day of Atonement, which is what Leviticus 16 is all about. For the high priest, again, again symbolically, placed all of the sins of the people of Israel on the head of the goat. The scapegoat. This is actually where we get our English word scapegoat. Someone who takes the blame for what someone else has done. And the scapegoat carrying the sins of the people is led into the wilderness, left there, where, of course, it dies. Leading on, second thing, the sacrifice of the substitute secures atonement. Uh, atonement, apparently the, that word has its origin in some of the early, uh, early days of the English language development, Anglo-Saxon, if you like that kind of thing. And it's at one meant. Put those little uh, dots in there and you get the meaning of atonement, at one meant. Two parties have been at odds with one another, in conflict with one another, enmity between them, separation of them, one from the other. But now they're reconciled. They're at peace with one another. They are at one with one another. Now, wonderfully, we're talking here about at one meant between God and those who've rebelled against him. Previously separated from God, not anymore. 
Instead, at one with him, at peace with him. Sins carried away by the scapegoat into the wilderness. That's a huge thing throughout the Bible. And wonderfully, again and again, God uses very vivid word pictures uh, to tell us just how completely he takes sin away from us when the scapegoat that he provides takes it away. Here are just a couple of wonderful samples of that in Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. From Canada to China, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. If we wanted to put this in modern parlance, we might say that all my sin is put onto a great big transport aircraft in uh, Pearson Airport in Toronto and flies off. I see it disappearing over the horizon. And how many miles is that? 10, 12, 15,000 miles? It, um, it lands in China or Japan or whatever. And it's gone. Or that vivid picture in Micah 7.19, you hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Imagine my sins being put in a great big iron box and there in the Dover to Calais ferry, it's dropped over the edge. Or to sustain the image, maybe this is pushing it too far, it's, it's strapped to Christ and he jumps over into the depths with my sin. These are the kind of word pictures that God gives us to show how completely he takes sin away from us, creating at one moment. Thirdly, this atoning sacrifice is given by God himself, not the worshiper. That's the marvelous statement in Leviticus 17, where God says, the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves in the altar. Sure, the worshiper brings the animal, but God says, I've given it. I've given it. It's God himself who's giving the sacrifice to himself. God in wrath and perfect judgment has to judge sin. God in perfect love provides the substitute for sin. And of course, the New Testament is full of this, isn't it? 1 John 4.10, we've got to quote this. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Another little aside, when we're thinking about animal sacrifices, the Old Testament, and the supreme atoning sacrifice of Christ in the New Covenant. There was a thought that must have gone through many, many minds in the time of the Old Testament. Perhaps a little Israelite child says to dad, that it's wonderful that God provides a sacrifice for our sin. We can trust in God's mercy and his promise of complete forgiveness. But that has to depend, surely, on something that God has still to do. Because this animal sacrifice thing doesn't really worship, does it? An animal dying for the sins of a human being? Surely this could only work when there was a human being dying for the sins of human beings. And there's another problem, Dad, that I have with this, because we bring an animal without defect, but where can we find a human being without defect? How does this work out? And I imagine Dad saying, good question. Let's go next door and talk to our good friend Isaiah. He's been writing about this. 
And he's been writing about someone called the perfect servant of the Lord. And this servant of the Lord is without defect. And he's also been writing that God is going to lay upon him the iniquity of us all. Just like the chief priest put the sins on the scapegoat. God is going to do the same thing. And he's going to be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. That's coming. Oh, indeed it is. Worship that smells good to God, really good, is where we approach him trusting only in the atoning sacrifice that he's given. And that, of course, is Christ. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to Christ's cross I cling. Coming always with that attitude, that smells so good to God. Now, second thing, a little more briefly. Our worship smells good to God when we approach him with humble and joyful confidence in the free access to himself that God has given us. Think, we were in this last week, weren't we? The clothing worn by the priests. There was something called the ephod and something called the breastpiece. In the ephod, in the ephod there were a couple of shoulder pouches and a lovely onyx stone in each one and six names on each of the two stones, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons uh, of Jacob, the founder of the nation of Israel. And then on the breast piece, there were 12 precious stones, one name for each of the sons of Israel on the stones. And these were carried in and out, in and out of the presence of God, the holy place, as the priest went in and out. The message, God's people given access to God in his holiness. Now, of course, that ties in with the atoning sacrifice that we've been thinking about, but this wasn't this such an emphatic thing when the priest did that, in and out, free access to this wonderful, holy God. And anyone thinking about it will think, <laughs> Just think of those 12 sons of Israel, not incredibly upright people. Let's imagine I'm from the tribe of Judah. And there's Judah is one of the names that goes in. Judah. Judah who gets his daughter-in-law Tamar pregnant, thinking she's a prostitute. How can a name like that go in and out before God? And the others were hardly exemplary. The other sons, uh, we know the biographies in the book of Genesis. Lots of things wrong with them. So as a, as a member of the tribe of Judah, I'm saying to myself, well, there's a lot of Judah in me too, but if the name of Judah can go in and out, having access to God, God must have done something really wonderful to make that possible, but I'm going to avail myself of it because God wants that to happen. Again, I think, if I had been given access, if you had been given access to any of the great rulers, uh, the important rulers in this world. I was imagining to myself, imagine I zoomed the White House and some aide answered and said, oh, just tell Joe it's Gordon. I mean, if he can remember who that is. It's not fair. <laughs> Access to the President of the United States? Well, that could be useful, perhaps. This is access to the living God. And it smells good to him when we avail ourselves of that. I mean, don't we honor someone when we say, you know, I just love coming to your home and dropping in on you. You always make me so welcome. 
And if someone says that to us, we think, great, it smells good. And it smells good to God when we avail ourselves of the free access to him that he gives us in Christ. It is, of course, humble, our approach to God on that basis. We don't say, I'm here because I'm worthy. I'm here only because your son died for me. But it is a joyful access because it's so incredible. We press on. The third thing that we have to bring when we come uh, to worship God to make it smell good, and that is that we need to be committed in our hearts to obeying him. Exodus 25, verse 16. So we're jumping Paul over a particular uh, uh, thing at this point. Put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. That's there in the Holy of Holies. There can be no worship that smells good to God unless in our hearts there is a desire, a commitment to wanting to obey him because he's loved us. Uh, Matt was very helpfully quoting from John 14. Whoever has my commandments and loves and obeys them, that's the person who loves me. So God wants to see that. Now, there were so many times in Israel's history when things went bad, and that's why uh, Derek read from Isaiah 1 with such vigor. Anger, the anger on God's part, when his people were worshiping him formally, coming uh, to the temple, temple coming to, um, uh, to worship God, and um, what did God say? Isaiah 1, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? says the Lord. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense, which God commanded to be burnt, that incense, your incense, at the moment in this kind of worship, is detestable to me. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. They thought that the act of worship was okay if it was just an act, in the other sense of that word. Just a pretense. They could come and do their thing in the temple, worship, and then go on with living, ignoring God's commands completely. No, it can't be that way. And if that's what non-commitment to obeying God is like, let's take a wonderful example from the New Testament about what warm-hearted, eager commitment to obeying God is like. So I put up there some verses from Philippians 4. The church at Philippi was very fond of, very committed to supporting Paul, the Apostle Paul. There's a lovely bond between Paul and that church. And here's what they did. They, Paul writes, thanking them for their care for him. You renewed your concern for me. It was good of you to share in my troubles. You sent me aid again and again when I was in need. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Epaphroditus was one of their very competent, very helpful guys. And Paul says, Epaphroditus, whom you sent to take care of my needs. They not only sent money gifts to Paul again and again, they sent Epaphroditus to be with him, to help him in his imprisonment. They really loved Paul. They did these things for him. And what an incredible description Paul gives of this action in Philippians 4.18. Notice this, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, 
pleasing to God. Their worship wasn't just, if you like, what they did when they got together and then just lived as they pleased outside of that. Their whole lives committed to obeying the commands of Christ, the new command, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. They were obeying that command, so the whole thing was fragrant. The whole thing smelled good to God. Uh, I knew of a pastor always ended the services in a, in, a, in a rather nice way. He would say, the service is over. Now I let the worship Monday to Saturday continue. It's one life of worship expressed certainly in times like this, but Monday to Saturday is not discontinued from what we do on a Sunday. There has to be that wholehearted commitment in our hearts to wanting to obey God in order to please him. Fourthly and lastly, our worship smells good to God when we approach him aware that he is a God who's always present and always providing. There's a couple of lovely things that were done in the tent of meeting that um, give indication of this. First of all, the lampstand, Exodus 7. 27, 21, in the tent of meeting outside the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant law, Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening till morning. This is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for the generations to come. It was one of the jobs of the priests to make sure that the lights on the special lampstand were supplied with oil so that they would always be burning. And intriguingly, that included making sure that they were burning right through the night. Imagine you and I switch off the lights at night. God doesn't. Mm, what's that all about? Well, think of the message that lies in that along these lines. You're an Israelite parent. You're worried about the company your teenage daughter or son uh, is, is getting into bad company. You can't do anything about it. And you have an aging parent who's very ill, and you're worried about these things. You can't sleep at night. And you go to the door of your tent, and you're looking around the camp, which is in total darkness, except in the tent of meeting, which is ablaze with light. Because God's lights are always on. He's the God who never slumbers nor sleeps. He's always awake. He's always alert to our being there, his people. He's alert to what's going on in our lives and to whatever it is we need in the circumstances of our lives. And there was something added even to that, another of the jobs, a sacred job again in the, in the temple. Every Sabbath, the job of the priests was to set out uh, several loaves on the table, a special table that was in the tent of meeting, freshly baked every week. And at the end of each week, they were to be, uh, these loaves were to be eaten by the priests and a new set placed in the table. And that food, eaten as it were, on behalf of the people by the priests sent a message. It showed the worshippers who went to the tent of meeting, God provided for them all the time. In a sense, when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, we're echoing that. We're saying, God, you're the provider of the food that we need. And that daily bread prayer, of course, covers all the normal, natural things of life that we need. And 
Our worship smells good to God when we approach him with that awareness. He's always awake, always alert to our needs as our loving Heavenly Father, always providing the bread for us that we need as our loving Heavenly Father. Put these things together. Our God and Father loves it when we come to him trusting only in the atoning sacrifice that he provides. Humbly joyful in the access to himself that he gives us, and we're availing ourselves of it again and again. In our deepest hearts, committed to obeying his commandments, and aware that he's our Father who's always present, always awake, always alert to our needs, always providing. Put those things together, bring them always in our worship. It's going to smell good to God. Paul, could we go back to that uh, little snide that we jumped over? Is that retrievable? Um, the one with the two verses of a little song. Numbers. Hey, good. Forgot to quote this when we're talking about access uh, to God. Very simple from an old, an old song. So near, so very near to God, more near I could not be. For in the person of his son, I am as near as he. So dear, so very dear to God, I could not dearer be the love with which God loves his son, such is his love to me. I think just as we sit here, we'll sing this to the tune of Amazing Grace. You don't need the band, I think. Uh, maybe you could help me start this. <laughs> da -dum. So near, so very near to God, more near I could not be, for in the person of his Son, I am as near as he. So dear, so very dear to God, I could not dearer be the love with which God loves his son. Such is his love to me. Didn't know if we were going to have time for that, but I'm glad we found it. Let's pray together. Father, please teach us in our hearts to bring to you the worship that you want to receive from us. And Lord, may that be our joy and your pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen.